This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A's. No special announcements, but I did want to say thank you once again to everybody that showed up and hung out on that last sales stream. I cleaned out a bunch of stuff and hopefully got a bunch of things in the hands of people that could have used it, whereas we're just kind of sitting around here. So if you ordered something, it's already en route. I shipped everything out Monday morning, so you either already have it or it's coming to you soon. So thanks again, but let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, PS3 Inquisition gutted an arcade one-up cabinet to, I'm quoting their words here, make it worth having. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you know, I, I do see the, the use case for those, but if you're a serious gamer, I agree. You don't want to use the built-in emulation with it. But they did gut it and replaced every component and had their mister in there, but they prefer using that on their CRT. So they'd prefer to put a Dreamcast in it instead, but they're not sure what the best course of action is. So this is actually a harder conversation to have than you'd expect because the screen that's in the cabinet is a 1600 by 1200 monitor with a DVI input. So the easy and cheap solution is to get one of those cheap, cheap VG, or, um, HDMI adapters from Amazon. Um, they're okay. The cables they use are unshielded, so you'll get a little bit of interference and they'll output 480p, but... It's, you're not going to get a perfect quality image without some kind of scaler in there simply because the Dreamcast outputs 480p, 640 by 480, and 1200 is not an integer of that. So you could line double it to 960p, but then you're still sending a 960p signal to a 1200p monitor. So you're still going to get some softness and maybe even some screen tearing or stuff like that. So my suggestion to you would be to buy one of those very, very cheap on Amazon Dreamcast HDMI cables, the one that I normally wouldn't recommend for people plugging it into like an OLED TV or a scaler or something like that. But the cost of those is so low, all you would need is just a little HDMI to DVI adapter, which I believe you already have. So just try it and see what you think. I have a feeling it might be more than good enough for what you're trying to do with this. But if you wanted to go a little bit further, you could do something like use a scaler. But the only thing that you're going to want to note with stuff like this is the Dreamcast library is 99% 480p. So if you were hooking it up to a, a PVM or a BVM or a RetroTank 4K or something, yeah, get the component video cables or the SCART cable with the switch in it so you could access both 15 kilohertz and 31 kilohertz modes. But if you're having it in an arcade setup and you're, you're not sending the native resolution of the monitor, that's overkill. Um, and on the flip side, even if you already had composite video cables and a RetroTank 2X laying around, that would be a perfectly fine solution, but you're still taking 480i and deinterlacing it using Bob deinterlacing. 
And for the price of those cheap Dreamcast HDMI cables, it might actually look a little bit better if Bob deinterlacing annoys you. Some people, uh, they don't like the look of it, the shaky look. Other people, it just doesn't bother them in the slightest. So it's, it's up to the individual. But I think that's exactly what I would do in your situation is just start with a cheap HDMI cable. Know that you're going to have some analog video interference in there and know that it's going to be a little bit soft, but it should be a great solution for cheap. So try that and then follow up. And if you get it from Amazon, if the adapter is really bad, you could always return it. Just have realistic expectations. But give that a try and follow up and see what you think. Next up, Sal wants to know how hard it would be for someone in the community to make Dreamcast and GameCube homebrew broadband adapters. And as far as I know, very hard because you would have to reverse engineer it. And I'm, I'm kind of guessing here, but guessing based on quite a lot of uh, experience working with people who have done stuff like this. And generally speaking, reverse engineering something like that, if you were to hire a company to do it, it would cost so much money that you would never recoup your cost for something like that, especially because once you start to get it manufactured, who knows, you know, who knows who is going to clone it or, or who's going to take the reverse engineering stuff for themselves. So it's so it's too risky for anybody to do that. So it would take somebody or a group of people with a lot of passion for it to just do it as a hobby. Perfect example of that is GC video. Ingo Korb essentially just said, I want to, there's no reason we don't, or we shouldn't have a digital solution and I'm not paying a ton of money for component cables. So here we go. Let me reverse engineer the Nintendo GameCube cables, uh, component cables, and I'll just release it open source and you all could do what you want with it. So it would take somebody like Ingo to to just really take a look and, and do that. But there would have to be a real need for it. And on the Dreamcast, if you just take the original uh, t- you know, telephone jack one and have a DreamPie set up or run it through RetroNAS, then you could actually just get almost all of the same functionality. On the GameCube, that's interesting, though, because you could actually load ROMs over the broadband adapter. So being able to have a wireless adapter or a you know gigabit Ethernet adapter, and I know the GameCube is not going to support that speed, but just saying you don't want the adapter to be the bottleneck ever. Having something like that, I think, would be huge. And I really thought that after RetroNAS was released, peop- that would kind of be the kick in the pants to a lot of people to say, oh, I, this is amazing, all my ROMs in one spot. So I think the thing really holding it back, my guess is the pie shortage. So I released that video, Dan, you know, when Dan released the project, but you couldn't really get pies that easy. But now that that's over, I should do another video on RetroNAS. And I should also do a video, I should do two, another just general, like, look at the cool things you could do if you take the time to set this up. But I should also take the time to do a video talking to my my fellow nerds, because a lot of my fellow IT nerds are kind of like, but I already have a network share, why would I do this? And I think I need to make a video just talking in nerd speak to explain how, yeah, if you have a Linux server and you all you need is Simlinks, you don't really need this. But all of the automation that Dan and Sorik did makes everything so much easier than setting it up yourself. So if you're a super nerd, don't just use your existing shares. Just open up a VM, install it there, and have it running on that side of things. So I think that might be the kick in the pants for GameCube because that would open up the doors for quite a few things, especially if somebody did a, a nice Wi-Fi chip in there or something. But I don't know about Dreamcast. But um, you know, to answer your question directly, how hard could it be? Very hard. But if there's a reason and enough dedicated people that want to do it, 
the homebrew community should pick up on it. But it is definitely getting hard for uh, to. It's harder than I thought to get people to jump on the retro NAS bandwagon, especially like the Wii. There's no reason why you couldn't just use a, a Wii uh, network adapter to grab files off of a server and play it that way. But I just people just don't seem to think it's that important. I, this is one of those things where we maybe I should just send a couple of you know I'll I'll ask for some funding from some friends I'll get together a bunch of retro NAS packages and send them to some of these devs and just say look here's free stuff that I took the time to make for you just try it and then tell me what you think and I have a feeling then people would go oh this is pretty cool I get it now but I guess that remains to be seen. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Next up, Rent Optional said, last week I casually threw shade at surge protectors. <laughs> Not all. Not all surge protectors. But the ones that you get from Walmart for a dollar that say surge protector, just open one of them up one of these days and look at what's inside, and you'll realize there's really not much protection in there, if any at all. Most of them are just wired together. I wasn't throwing shade. I just wanted to make sure to, to, I always try to have everybody get realistic expectations for the things that they're trying to buy. So a power conditioner and a surge protector are generally two wildly different things. Um, but let me just continue. They have roughly 30 consoles, systems, audio, video items plugged into three separate Belkin 3900 Joule surge protectors going into two separate outlet groups. So right off the bat, you've already said something that means you're not just using the $1 ones. You have the ones that are rated at a Joule rating. So right off the bat, either they're lying, which happens, but probably not from Belkin, or um, you actually have something that's more of a actual surge protection built in type of thing rather than just a bunch of stuff wired together. Um, continuing though, uh, they never have more than a small handful of things turned on at a time, so this should be safe. Totally. For the sake of cleanliness and ease of moving things around, they'd much rather have those long industrial power strips that have like 14 or 16 outlets. They never did that because none of those have any sort of surge protection. And they live in an area that gets a decent amount of lightning, wind, or rain. Are surge protectors really just snake oil or are they actually needed to protect equipment? Well, the best protection is unplugging it from the wall when you're done um, or having some type of protection where when you flip the switch, uh, it does a very good job separating that from the AC inlet circuit so that if lightning does strike, within reason, if lightning strikes the outlet that it's plugged into, it's probably going to arc over. But, you know, if you your house does suffer a lightning strike, that should be fine. But I always like a little bit more than that for the stuff that's the most important to me. Or I just leave it unplugged and, you know, don't use it during a lightning storm. <laughs> um, so stuff like finding surge protectors that actually have jewel ratings on them or using those APC power conditioners. Once again, you just have to you, uh, add up your total amount of power draw to make sure it doesn't exceed that. For me personally, I'm in the same situation as you is even when I had that entire wall wired, there's never more than like four or five components on at once, TV, audio, console, you know, switch, whatever. Um, and really only one or two drawing a lot of power. And even then, it was still far underneath the maximum rating of that power conditioner that I had gotten. So 
that because of that, I only had one connected in and it just it made sense. Obviously, if I powered on a ton of stuff at the same time, I would either remove that from the circuit and you know turn off everything else in my house or something. But I, I don't normally do stuff like that. I don't have a need to really. And the only time I would is if I ever just wanted to do a CRT demo. But um, I don't I don't have no plans on doing that. So um, our, so to answer your actual question, are surge protectors really just snake oil or are they actually needed to protect equipment? The super cheap ones are generally just power splitters and not actually surge protection built in. But the ones that have circuits in to do it are totally legit. Um, and you could spend an infinite amount of money you know, conditioning the power in your house and you probably don't need to though. And are they needed to protect equipment? Once again, that's got to be up to you. Like that, uh, you know, my D32, I only had it plugged into the wall when I was using it, and I never used it during a lightning storm. So normally I was sitting outside of my porch watching the lightning anyway, because I love that stuff. But so I never worried. And, um, and the only times I had it plugged in, like if I was watching TV all day on it or something, I would use that APC power conditioner. But are the, if they're needed, that's really up to you and your setup. If you have that power turned off most of the time, probably not. And you could even, in fact, use that power conditioner thingy. That's power uh, switch to turn things off. So totally up to you, but I'll leave a link to the power section of the Amazon store I have just to show some of the stuff that I've been using. But I would just always keep everything into account, right? If you see a $5 surge protector it's probably a splitter. And if you see something that has a jewel rating that's heavier, that if you opened it up, has a bunch more circuits in it, it probably does have surge protection. Couple of questions from Retro Music Dan. First, should they just go out and buy some controller extension cables or could they make them from spares and maybe repair units? If that's feasible, how difficult do I think that would be? So anytime you make a cable, it's gonna be a pain. And if you enjoy projects like that, if you're looking for something to do or you have a cool sense of completion, you have a project that you could use, go for it. And you might even need them in the cases of things like Super Nintendo. You might need all of the pins wired if you're looking for an extension cable for the Super Scope because the Super Scope receiver doesn't, uh, it needs to plug in, or I think it uses more more pins than the controller does or something because I've never had an extension cable that it worked through. So you might need to do stuff like that unless you find the exact controller extension cable that works with it. But generally speaking, they're so cheap, I would just buy them and, and use the extension cables. And as I talked about the other week, the only thing you really have to worry about is connection quality. So you might even use some painter's tape or something to tape them together uh, you know, just to make sure that it, it sticks in there. But other than that, I mean, I would just kind of pick one up. Console 5 is always my go-to for stuff like that, but I believe Stone Age Gamer and Rondo has them as well. So, I, I mean, and it's also really hard to tell which are the, the good ones or not. And really the only thing that makes them good is if all the pins are connected and if they have a solid connection both to the console and to the controller. So they're cheap enough where I would just pick one up, see how it worked, and kind of go from there. Um, are there any tested or reputable extension cables on the market none i don't know of one brand where you could say yes just buy x brand and it will always be good but if anybody has any suggestions please let me know i generally just get them from the stores i mentioned and they've been fine so far next question though they're interested in trying some indie games on the switch and ps5 with post-processing crt stuff from the tink 5x on an lg c1 oled What's the best way of connecting these HDMI consoles to it? And do they need to change the firmware to one with downscaling or something? 
So the latest Tink firmware, I believe, has downscaling built in. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Latest Tink 5X. Um, if you wanted to use the original one for whatever reason, slightly different features, the RetroTink 5X isn't locked, so you could put any firmware revision on it. So I would start with the newest and see how that worked for you uh, and just kind of go from there. there. There are some pretty cool features in the latest firmware as well that might kind of go with that. But I would just get... Um, I would kind of uh, just get any adapter that goes to, I guess component video would probably be the easiest for this one. And in the context of taking 720p or 480p, then you don't really need to worry so much about these DACs. It's really the component video ones have issues with 15 kilohertz. Um, you could buy 10 from the same Amazon store and five might work perfectly with 240p and 480i. Three might only work with 480i, and two might not work with 15 kilohertz at all. It's it's really hard. We really need that community-built one to be released soon, which I think it's getting a prototype, or it's in prototype stage. I don't, I'll have more info when there's actually something to talk about. But So I would just get any one of those DACs to go to component video, send that into the Tink 5X. And the only other thing you might want to do is make sure that the switch in PS5 are set to 720p or 480p. And you might need something like an EDID spoofer. I actually have been messing around with this. This is an EDID feeder. Um, I have another one, and you could set the resolutions. And I don't think this one has 480p, but it definitely has 720p on it. The other one that I used, I was able to, you plug in to another device, you press a button, and it copies the EDID. So I keep meaning to use the Tink 4K to make a 480p EDID, so I could try that as well. But that's it. That'll what, Essentially what that is doing, the EDID stuff, is telling your Switch and your PS5, this is a 720p only device or a 480p only device. So it'll switch to that resolution for you. So you don't really have to worry. I'd still go and double check. But yeah, I think that would be probably the perfect way to do it. And uh, I mean, I just have at it CRT masks, downscaling, especially any retro styled stuff like Axiom Verge and all those games. I think that would be a very cool thing to try. I've done it myself and loved it. So yeah, I think just those DACs would be fine. I'll leave a link. Next up, Lily Larceny is still working on their 2TV couch co-op setup. A quick audio update, after experimenting with two TVs, there was nothing to complain about them both playing audio simultaneously. So they just decided to get each TV its own higher quality soundbar and run the surround sound receiver as an alternative connection for single TV gaming or movies. Awesome. Love it. And this is the perfect use for cheaper soundbars, too, because you have your surround sound set up for when you really want to sink into awesome audio quality and when you just want to be able to hear it and have it not sound like crap like most TV speakers have, then perfect. You have yourself an upgraded soundbar. But onto their actual question, could I direct them to a model of HDMI matrix switch like an Xtron or one I reviewed last year for use when two players might play two single player games independently on various consoles that they only have one of, but be able to play them on any of either TV? So, for instance, one person playing N64 and the other person playing PC Engine, both HDMI, and direct either of them to either TV. They suspect they'll need more device inputs than they could count or multiple switches. And this also begs the question of switching prior to an upscaler. If they have SNES, Genesis, etc. with no HDMI, how could they switch them into something like the Tink 4K and then deliver them to either TV or to non-HDMI devices simultaneously? So that's where it's going to get really complicated. I'll leave a link to HDMI matrix switches. However, the ones that I reviewed last year are out of stock. So please, please, please 
buy these from the Amazon links and then return them if they don't work for you. They are untested. These I, I do not vouch for them on paper. They seem okay. Uh, but the only two types that I found are 4x4 for the last generation, so up to 4K60, and uh, 4x2 for HDMI 2.1, so you could do 4K 120. And if you're talking about having four consoles on the input side and two TVs on the output side, then or 4x4, then that actually would work perfect. But once you start mixing in more than four, and then once you start also mixing in analog consoles, that's where things get kind of crazy um you would need i don't think you'd be able to do two analog consoles at once with a matrix matrix switch because you would then need two scalers so what you would actually need is an extron cross point matrix for the analog and then some other kind of hdmi matrix for that and two scalers so and you know that two scalers isn't crazy to think about it's very very likely that somebody bought a OSSC or a Tink 5X, and now they're looking to get the next one. But you would actually have to use two matrix switches. Um, and I think the you know the best ones for that would be the analog side would be the cross points because you can get them fairly cheap. Yes, you need to buy a bunch of adapters or build them yourself. And yes, it's an older piece of equipment, so maybe you're going to have to recap it at some point. But for the price point on those, I think that's how you should handle analog. And then going into an HDMI switch, what you could do is uh, you you could use two HDMI matrix switches. You could use an HDMI 1.4, where Xtron makes them that they used to be like four grand or something like that. You could find those cheap as well, but you're not going to really go over 1080p 60 on those, which should be fine for quite a lot of things in a, a you know half retro, at least half retro setup. And then get another one of those, maybe HDMI 2.0, 8x2 switches. So you would basically be using both inputs on both, or two inputs on both TVs. So you would always have to switch which analog consoles get output to which scaler. And then all of the HDMI stuff, including the scalers, would go into the HDMI uh, Extron matrix, the older one. And then you'd send that to a TV like let's just say input one on both TVs, but then any consoles that need 4K 60 or above, you would use the second matrix switch and send those to input two on your TV. So yeah, real complicated. And um, so I would have a think about that and see exactly what you were trying to accomplish from it and see if that's worth it for you. You might have one TV that's dedicated to analog as well as digital, but the other is digital only. Really just kind of sit back and think what the total solution should be. But then follow up because it sounds like a really badass idea and I'd love to see where you went with it. But yeah, three switches might actually be the key. But luckily, the two older ones shouldn't shouldn't break the bank at all. But the cabling to make it all work might and it might be way too much of a rat's nest for whatever setup you have. But I'll leave a link to the at least the HDMI switches that I've been hoping to look into. Next up, GameCubeFan74 wants to know if the limited range RGB output on the Wii U would still matter if they're converting the digital HDMI signal to analog. Yes, absolutely, but as long as the EDID is set correctly on everything, which should be automatic, then that wouldn't matter because it would be doing it for you. So to elaborate a little bit, GameCubeFan74's chain is a Wii U going to an HDMI Extron crosspoint which is funny because that's exactly what I was just talking with Lily about. Um, I didn't see your question, so it's kind of a fun coincidence that you bring that up. However, from there it goes into an HD Fury 3, into an Extron RGB 203 RXI interface, into a Sony BVM D24 monitor. So 
What should be happening is the Wii U should be sending a signal that says this is a limited range signal over HDMI. And the Crosspoint should be copying that signal, including that EDID, and sending that to the HD Fury 3, which is then saying, okay, this is a limited range signal, let me switch my conversion over, and then outputting it properly. The only time that would be an issue is if anyone, if the Crosspoint or the HD Fury wasn't interpreting the EDIDs correctly, or if it was something like the Eon Xbox adapter, which the EDID is saying this is a full range signal when it's actually a limited or, or vice versa, it doesn't really matter. So you should be fine because it should just be working all automatically. But if you wanted to double check, you could always um, you could always try to get into the HD Fury 3. I think you're able to toggle some settings in that. So you could always double check and see. Um, but you should be okay because the EDID should all be sending properly to each other and working all that stuff out for you. Next up, Gemini Man wants to know, on the topic of safely storing original controllers, is there any evidence that storing a controller, like an N64 controller, in a Ziploc or anti-static bag can damage the controller over time? They figure it's probably fine, but notice that a tight storage bag might apply pressure to the analog stick pushing it left or right, and perhaps keeping it in this position for months or years could permanently damage it. So you nailed it. That's the one thing I would point out, is when you store these things, um, pressure on the different parts of it would matter. So make sure the bag is loose enough. Analog sticks, I would definitely not leave in one position. I would have, kind of have it so that it's it's just not touching anything. Um, putting it in boxes might be a little bit better. You know, like find small mailing boxes that are just big enough for the controller and put them in those. And, um, I, you know, th there's a couple other things that come to mind, right? So I did, uh, one of the companies that I worked for a million years ago was designing computers for the medical field. And we had a lot of stuff about IP65 ratings and what happens when the oils from your skin or the stuff that you touch gets on plastic. And generally speaking, just wiping down a controller and, you know, every five or 10 years, take it apart and clean it really well. That should be fine for most. But when you put that in a sealed bag, I wonder what changes are made um, unlike the molecular level, right? Now, if it was a humid day when you zipped it up and your hands were greasy, is that going to cause some kind of film or grossness on it? Um, if you wanted to be super OCD, would you wear gloves and you know do a full controller wash down and then let it fully dry and then put it in there? I don't know. Um, and it might be none of those things. It, this might be a absolutely useless conversation that doesn't matter at all. But I, I would just think about all of that stuff and kind of and just kind of envision any fear you might have about that, even crimping the cables so that when you take it out after a year, the cable's crooked. So when you're trying to play your game, the cable's constantly pulling between you and the console. That's definitely something to worry about. Um, that happened all the time. That's why I ended up hanging all my controllers. So I don't think the only thing I would say definitely don't do is make sure that the you know, your analog sticks on any controller are smushed down to the side, that should definitely be free to just stay in the normal position. But other than that, I don't know, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on that. Anybody have any, any concerns or anything to think about? Next up, Zachary Van Lulling wanted to talk about live symphonies playing video game music, which is something I always thought was awesome, and I've never actually had an opportunity to attend myself. The one that Zachary wanted to talk about is actually coming up in the Hartford, Connecticut area, March 23rd uh, next year, and it's a full chorus. We'll be playing some of the music of 35 plus years of Final Fantasy with accompanying video content for that performance. 
I think those are awesome. I've seen uh, cell phone handheld camera footage of the Zelda one. Um, I don't remember. If, uh, and I've seen the ones where they do a mixture of older music. And I always thought that stuff was absolutely awesome. I would like to go. Uh, Zachary was kind enough to offer me an extra ticket, except um, I've never played a Final Fantasy game. I'm sure half the people listening now are like, cancel my damn subscription, screw this guy. But uh, my my little brother did. He showed me some of the games, and the music was good. The visuals were good. I get the storyline was pretty cool, but I am not a role-playing fan. It's just, it's not my thing. Um, the closest I would get to that is like the Zelda-style games, which are more action-adventure and less role-playing. So for me to take that ticket, I would just be sitting there taking somebody's seat who could be loving this experience who grew up in the final fantasy games so very much appreciate all of your kind words loved meeting you at retro world expo uh, obviously i love going to that show and i love meeting people there and i will leave a link to the hartford symphony for anybody around the area so basically anybody between new york and boston and all the way around if this is something that means a lot to you check out the link and uh definitely consider going because live music is always like absolutely incredible any kind of live music i think is a better experience for the most part than at home um, and this is no different so thank you for all the kind words and everything and i'll definitely leave a link for anybody who's interested in going next up kelp help has a problem with a pvm's h-sync issue steve from retrotech is probably going to be the better person to ask but let's just go through it anyway so they were able to pick up a basically free sony pvm 14m4u and it seems to have good image quality, but horrible horizontal sync issues. It seems to be zoomed in with the service menu being not too available. When a console's plugged in via BNC to RCA and turned on, the picture has a terrible multicolored look to it. And a Reddit post said one component on the main board is the culprit and needs to be replaced. Um, any advice and any idea, any idea of where to order caps for a PVM? The second thing is they'd like to automate the PVM using a TP-Link Casa smart plug to turn it off via Google Assistant. Would this damage the PVM if power is cut off and on via the plug? So a couple of questions, uh, a couple of answers to this. I'm going to go with the easy one first. As long as it's a PVM with a physical switch on the front and not like a BVM with the power switch on the back but the standby mode in the front, I cannot possibly think of a reason why killing the power that way would hurt it. If anybody has any thoughts on that, please let me know. Uh, but my guess, 100% guess, is for this model PVM, that should be completely fine. And also with stuff like that, like we were talking about power surges and stuff before, that's one more thing to help remove the power from that device if there's ever a surge protector, protection on it. Now, as far as what the components are... Um, this is definitely more of a, a question for Steve. And I every time I hear Reddit, all of my, uh, you know, my spidey sense comes up and I always think twice. And I know that's a rude thing to say because just because it's on Reddit doesn't mean somebody as awesome as Steve was posting on there. It could be great advice from a great person or it could be a crazy person just making stuff up as they go, which is so common on there. So I certainly wouldn't go and replace anything without somebody who actually has definite experience working on this model and has done something like that before. And maybe that's exactly what the Reddit post was. Maybe somebody had this exact issue, they replaced L509, and poof, everything worked again. Um, but the, whenever I see stuff like that, I always ask, why did that component go? Is it an issue with a power board that led that to blow? Is there something else wrong with the monitor? So 
you know, Steve is probably the person to go go to for something like this. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to just like pass on your question, but I would much rather say, you know, go sign up for Steve and, and talk with him about it than try to give you advice that could hurt your amazing free B- or PVM. So, yeah, sorry for my mostly uselessness on this one, but I'd like to err on the side of caution, especially when it comes to something like that. Next up, Oliver Claire is having a problem with accessing the SD card from Furtex SD card loader for the Neo Geo CD. And you basically need to like, press your finger up against the bottom side of the vent before putting the micro SD card in. Otherwise, it'll just fall inside the console. And they're curious, you know, should they try to fix this wedge in place by using some non-conductive tape? Is that going to damage the console over time? Um, Could you eventually break the plastic vent? And I think probably yes to all of those. But how long would it take how, you know, how many times are you going to be accessing it? There's a lot of questions. So if once a year you eject the micro SD card to add a new homebrew game on there, I don't think you'll ever have an issue doing it the way you're doing it. But if you're like me and you're constantly screwing around with stuff, then and you're always just inserting it, then I think a better solution might be to take all of the screws out of the case, of the bottom of the case, and mount it inside and just lift the top off of the case whenever you need to access the micro SD. If one of the tricks I do with stuff like that is I put the screws in a little Ziploc bag and then tape that to the inside of the case as well so that um, I don't lose the screws like I did for that Dreamcast case. And I forgot what video it was. I think the RetroTink 4K video or something where you saw the case plop o- uh, open for the Dreamcast. It's because I didn't do the, I forgot to do the screws thing and lost the case screws and eventually just got other ones. But yeah, I mean, I would just kind of, I would look at this not as a functionality, but a preservation thing. Neo Geo CDs are awesome. You have this very cool SD card loader uh, installed inside of it. So what is the least worst to you? If eventually snapping off one of the vents in back, which you can't really see, but you are technically breaking a piece of plastic, is it worse to risk doing that? Or is it worse to just uh, not touch the micro SD card and unbolt the console whenever you need to access it, or just leave it unbolted so you can constantly pull the top off? That's going to be up to you. But I'm always very cautious when it comes to stuff like that. Um, especially with, you know, rarer consoles. But this is kind of also why I love console replacement shells because if retro game restore made a neo geo cd case buy one of those and drill some holes in the back of it you're not ruining anything you know anything original and um and possibly meaningful to you it's a purpose of an aftermarket case is to do aftermarket stuff on it but they don't have those for neo geo cds so i think um you're kind of stuck doing anything else you could try to get a longer extension for the sd card and try to feed that through so it just flops out around in the back um, and then you could just use some tape to secure that to the back of the plastic um, or, or not even just make sure that it hangs at an angle where it's not being yanked on, but just very carefully hold it when you eject the card. That's another option that you could try, um, you know, micro SD extensions and run them through the vent. I don't think you'd have a problem running an extension into an extension. So that's another option, but yeah, I don't know. I, I guess those are your those are your three options to try. But let me know what you decide because I'm kind of interested to see your solution. 
Well, that's it for this week. As always, if you have any question at all, please just ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post. But also, I really like doing what I did today and just scrolling through in real time and having a conversation like we were hanging out somewhere. All the questions today just happen to be on Patreon, but wherever it is that you support, feel free to ask there. It just happens that more people support there, so that's why I get most of the questions there. But Floatplane, the YouTube subscription service, and even the Kofi subscription service you know those are the ones i use for the moment and uh if there's new ones or better ones out there always let me know i just i appreciate you all so much and i want to make this easier for you i don't want to tell you where to go i want you to tell me where to go but either way thank you all so much for participating for all the support because it really is you that's keeping all of this stuff going and i especially appreciate the supporters because they actually most of you kind of know what i do or get a sense of it that's uh, I'm the worst at self-promotion. I feel like I'm bragging when I talk about stuff like I, I do. I got this like weird feeling like, ugh, shut up. So um, a lot of people out there really do think I just copy and paste articles <laughs> and repost them places. But I'm very glad that you all know that it's not the truth. So thank you all very much. And I will see you next week.